Should we do that? Let's get your Bibles open and uh, get them open to J- Joshua chapter 2. And if you're using one of those Bibles that's in the pew, it's page 179. So let's everybody get your Bible open. You're going to need to see all of the verses that I'm going to bring to you. We're mainly going to be in Joshua 2 and then a little bit in Joshua 6 as well. We are in a series for the summer. It's kind of a superhero series. It's called the Wonder Woman series. And then we're going to segue into the Teen Titan series in August. We're looking at ladies in the Bible that were amazing. And then we're going to be looking at young people in the Bible that were equally amazing. I mean, God has just done amazing things through so many different people. And my hope and my goal in the first part of the summer is that we all would look at the ladies in our church as having such gifts, as being used by God in such tremendously impactful and powerful ways that we would pray for them, that we would cultivate that, that we would encourage that. And then we would do the same thing with the young people in our church. We've got some amazing young people. And Pastor Austin is our youth pastor, and he is investing in these teens and in their families. And we've got children's ministry directors, Linda Friend, Chrissy Sisko. They are just pumping hours and hours into children. We've got some amazing people. And we want to really recognize that. And so this series is meant to do that. So we just began last week this Wonder Woman series. And by the way, time out real quick. I was told this week that somebody last week during the sermon fell asleep. Now that's not even, I mean, that's sad, right? I mean, you, you all should be like mourning and grieving. Okay, maybe you shouldn't be doing that, but you should be at least sad a little bit. I mean, this is the word of God. But the, amaz- the amazing thing is that the gender of the one who fell asleep, she's a woman. I mean, how can you fall asleep in a Wonder Woman series? I mean, I'm expecting that from men. They're going to hit snooze buttons, but not the ladies. So I've got to do something a little bit, um, i got to shake things up. Desperate times call for desperate measures. We're going to talk about a prostitute tonight. I I just got to do something to get everybody awake. So we're going to talk about a prostitute, an innkeeper, and we're going to see the power of her faith. If you fall asleep tonight in this message, I don't even have an imprecatory doom to tell you. That's just how bad that is. You are, above all people, are likely cursed. That lovely introduction aside, let's get an introduction to the origin story of our Wonder Woman, Joshua chapter 2. So here we go. Let's look at verse 1. We're a Bible-preaching church. Let's get in the Word of God. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now I'm going to show you four pictures of the gospel that you're going to see through the life of Rahab. I mean, this is amazing. I'm hoping that even if you're familiar with this story, that you're going to learn or see some nuances today that you've never seen before. But that's not really the goal. I mean, just to see new things. That's not really, you know, you just inflate with knowledge. There's not really a lot of redeeming quality with that. What I really want you to do is see these four in the lives of people around you and in the life of your own. Here's the first one. Rahab is a picture 
of a sinner living in a fallen world. Now, I'm going to preach the gospel today in this message. We're going to do it all through the book, all through the life of Rahab. Here's the first. She's a sinner. She's living in a fallen world. Well, let's get to context. Israel, they're camped seven miles or east of the Jordan River. So in your mind, get your, get your mental compass out. you got the Jordan River. They're east of it, about seven miles. They're in a place called Abel Shatim. Not good things have happened there, by the way. Think Balaam cursing the Israelites. Think a spear going through the back of a guy that's having sexual relationships with a pagan woman that's not his wife. All of this is happening here. It is a very bad place. God's wrath was ignited there. But you've got to get a little bit more of the background. It's been 40 years since Israel left Egypt. Remember where there were slaves? They've been wandering in the wilderness, but now the time had come for them to go in, conquer the land that God had given to them, go into the land that God had promised to them. And you've got to remember, Moses, he's dead. You've got uh, Miriam, you've got Aaron, they're no longer alive. Now you've got Joshua leading the entire nation of Israel. And he sends two spies into this town called Jericho. Now, you're going to see a map up there to give you a little bit of a compass bearing. Jericho, it's pretty strategic. It's the gateway into the land of Canaan. It's five miles west of the Jordan River, so they're like 12 miles apart, Israel and, and, um, and the Jericho town, where they're camped at least. They're west of the River Jordan. They're six miles north of the Dead Sea, if you can picture that on that map. Let me just give you a little bit of a placement. They're 16 miles northeast of Jerusalem. So just giving you a little bit of a bearing now where, where they're actually located. But I want you to really see this. Now in your mind with all the Sunday school stories, you probably envision or at least may envision Jericho is this massive New York City size city with gleaming golden walls that are towering to the heavens. That's kind of how it's portrayed, by the way, in children's stories. But in reality, the city was around eight acres in size. Can you imagine that? Not that big, is it? Had a population of between 1,500 and 2,000 people. Might actually be the world's oldest city, vying with Syria. Might be really the world's oldest city. It's certainly one of the lowest cities on the, cities on the planet, 740 feet below sea level. But it's actually more of a fortress than a town. You get all these people that are farmers, all these people that live outside the walls of Jericho. They have their villages dotting the countryside. And whenever trouble approaches, they all flee into the city. And then they shut and lock the gates. Here we go, verse 1. We've got the spies that go into the city and they enter into the house of a prostitute named Rahab. This lady sells her body. Now listen, there's two kinds of prostitutes in the Old Testament. She sells her body not at a pagan temple in a religious ceremony. That was a lot of the prostitutes. She's not a religious prostitute. She's a merchandising prostitute. She's doing this for money. 
And she doesn't sound so wonderful at all. And you might be actually right now, if you don't know the story, you might be kind of scratching your head going, what kind of church is this? That a prostitute is a wonder woman. Well, you know, we, we do kind of like our heroes cleaned up. We like their lives straightened away. We want them to be great examples for our children. We'd be okay, I think, probably, if the Bible says that they went into the house of Rahab, who used to be a prostitute, but now is living for the Lord. And now we, like, we want to bring her in and get testimonies from her up on stage. Yet all the indications in the text are that at this present moment, Rahab is, not was, is a prostitute. She's selling her body to make a living, and the spies go into her home. Now the story kind of begins here. She's a really clear picture, really, of all humanity. We're all sinners. And God's grace is not given to those who have cleaned up their act. Now, can I, can I encourage you to do something for a moment? This might understandably be somebody that's a little bit difficult for you to put into the story, into her shoes, especially if you're a guy or a girl that's been chaste and pure all of your life. But listen, there's lots of room in her sandals for you to fit. You were a sinner. I was a sinner. And by the way, you and I are still sinners. We live in a fallen world. So there's really now some points of relationship that we all have with Rahab. We were woefully sinning. We were sinners that could not not sin. We could not clean up our act. We could not get things better and make God pleased with us. Because his grace is not given to those who have cleaned up their act. His grace is given to those who are in desperate need. Those who are sinners. Those who do not deserve it. Who are helpless to ever get their lives straightened up on their own. So we've got Rahab who is a picture of a sinner. Just like all of us are sinners. But she's living in this fallen, God-opposing, wicked, terrible city. She's a Canaanite. They were a morally decayed people. She's living in Jericho, an exceedingly wicked city. It's a city that is so bad. You want to know how bad Jericho was morally? When it was destroyed, God gave a command through Joshua, burn it to the ground and don't anybody ever rebuild it again. If they do, it's going to be on the bones of their dead oldest child. By the way, somebody did rebuild Jericho and their oldest child died. God means... Pretty seriously, this is a depraved city. I don't want it rebuilt. I don't want it on this earth again. It's a city that's very, very morally unclean. And all of a sudden, now listen, if you're really interacting right now, if you're really seriously thinking right now, as I'm hoping all of you are, there's got to be something kind of nagging at you. If not, I'm going to try to get that, motion, that, that thing agitated in motion. I want to get this thing moving in you because you're going to hear this from people. There's a lot of people that are really troubled that God would dispossess these people from this land. That God would destroy most of them in the process. And they accuse God of being cruel and unfair and unjust. Now you might actually feel this way. 
Or you might have, ha- have actually talked to people that have said, Wait, I mean, God, what kind of God would murder or kill or get rid of all of these thousands of Canaanites in the land promised to the Jews? By the way, that argument is still valid in Israel today. It's still raging. But let's kind, of, let's kind of work on that a little bit. The land never belonged to them. The land never belonged to the Canaanites. They were squatters in the land whom the creator of the universe allowed to remain for a time. And he did it, listen, to give them time to repent. God had given the land to Abraham for his descendants. And he did it 700 years just about before Jericho fell, 685 years to be exact. But he kept saying to Abraham 685 years ago, the land will be yours. But the Amorites are in it, the Canaanites are in it, listed a whole bunch of other people groups. He says, but it's not time for you to get the land yet because their wickedness is not yet complete. In other words, God was giving time for the people in the land to repent. But instead, they increased their wickedness until the possibility of repentance was gone. It was too late. So let me give you a scenario that's going to help make a little bit more sense to you why God did what he did. Ready? Now you imagine this is you. You have to put your imagination cap on for a moment. Let's say that you start a company. And you hire employees. And one of your employees hates you and rarely does what you ask. And what he does do never is done the way that you'd like. And this worker, he doesn't care about your company's reputation at all. He complains over every single thing. And your other employees, they keep asking you, why are you keeping this guy On our team, why don't you get rid of him? He deserves firing. But you respond that you want to give him more time to change. You want to give him time to turn things around. Now, I want you to keep imagining. you got to really imagine this. Imagine that you and that employee live unnaturally long lives, hundreds of years. Now, you ready? Listen to this because this is exactly what God has done. For 645 years, you employ this worker. And instead of getting gradually better, he gets worse. He gets much worse to the point that he now only does what he wants to do, never does what you tell him. He is utterly selfish. He is hateful to your other employees. He is hateful to you. He refuses to do anything the way that you want him to do. But still, your patience stretches on. You decide to give him another 40 years. It's only been 645 Give him another 40 years. Give him another opportunity, another window of time to change. Make it clear to him what's going to happen if he doesn't change. And there's a day when your patience finally comes to an end. 685 years of having that employee in your company, you finally end your mercy. And you fire him. And you fire him quickly. And you fire him without mercy. 
Now, would there be anybody, I mean anybody, after 685 years of patiently working with this employee, giving him opportunity after opportunity to change his ways, would anybody really truly be able to accuse you of wrongdoing or mistreatment when you fire him? Now, when you put it in that way, you get to see a little bit more of the extraordinary patience that God had given all of those Canaanites, all of those Amalekites, all of the Amorites, all those people groups in the promised land. He gave them 685 years to repent, to change their ways, warned them time after time, and they would not. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God told Abraham 685 years earlier, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. They plundered the Egyptians, and they shall come back here in the land of promise, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The sin of the people in this land was not yet complete, but 685 years later it was, and God's judgment begins with Jericho. So, so far, we've got Rahab, she's a prostitute, she's a sinner, she's living in a fallen city, in a depraved city among depraved people. This is the gospel, point number two. Rahab is a picture of saving faith. I mean, you kind of have to wonder, and I don't know if anybody has ever thought of this before, probably many of you have, but have you ever wondered, why is this story of Rahab even in the Bible? It absolutely has no impact on the fall of Jericho. Nothing. The story, the entire story of the outcome of Jericho would have gone off without a hitch if it never introduced Rahab. Why is she in the Bible? Now I'm going to answer that for you, I think, pretty clearly. She's in the Bible to show that if the Canaanite people had repented like this prostitute does, they would not have died. They would have been saved just like she is about to be saved. Even these cruel, wicked people, as this prostitute shows, could have been saved if they repented. This is why it's in the Bible. Rahab owns a house, likely an inn. It's a bed and breakfast, except there's a whole lot more bed than breakfast. That was, I thought, kind of funny. <laughs> Maybe inappropriate. We immediately wonder what two good Hebrew boys are doing in her house. I mean, there's been a lot of commentaries that are very liberal telling us that they were on a side mission. That's not true. Jericho, situated, situated on the trade routes, the city was in a position to know exactly what was happening all over the land, all over the corridor, up from the north, all the way down to the south, down to Egypt. It was a perfect trade route location, 
And here's a prostitute that's having all of these dalliances with all of these merchants who talk a lot in her employ, I am sure, and she is a hotbed of information. She is CNN in the flesh in the ancient world. Where else would they find the information that they're going to find from her? The spies go into the home, but they were really, honestly, epically lousy spies, verse 3. They were detected. The soldiers come to her house to find them. They saw the spies going to her house. I mean, they're really not very good at this. And if they're caught, well, here's what's going to happen if they're caught. They're going to have their eyes plucked out. They're going to have their tongue and their hands cut off. They're going to be dragged half alive through the streets of the city. And if they're still alive, they're going to be stoned as a traitor. And she's going to share the same fate. So what is our prostitute going to do? She holds their lives in her hands. What is she going to do? Look at verse, look, look at verse 4. She lies to the king's soldiers three times and sends them on a wild goose chase. And after they left, she goes up on the roof of her home where she had hidden the two spies under piles of flax. These are a plant that are drying out in the sun. They're going to be spun later into linen cloth. That's how they made, made linen. It's still how they make linen. She digs them out. She tells them the reason that she did what she did. Verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. That was verses 9 and 10. She knew that the land was given to Israel by the Lord. Look at the all, all small caps. That's what it's called, L-O-R-D. When it's all small caps like that, it is the name Yahweh, later turned into Jehovah. This is the greatest name of God. It's already demonstrating her faith because that was a name for God only given to the Israelites, only given to those who had faith. And she knew that the Canaanite lease on this land was up. It was done. It was terminated. Faith had come to life within her. The way, by the way, that it always does. And if you're a Christian, this is what has happened in you, whether you're aware of it or not. For we, look at verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord, this is how faith gets triggered, gets activated in anybody. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now this is amazing. I want you to really understand this for a moment. Rahab did not have Sunday school to go to when she was a little girl. Rahab did not have what we have in copies of the Bible. It really doesn't even appear that she had another Christian around her sharing the message of the gospel with her. All she needed was God who triggers her faith into being when she hears all that God had done. By the way, do you not know how powerful your testimony is? Do you not know that by giving your testimony in a very unlikely, sometimes, 
what seems like a little way, you can actually be used by God to trigger faith into life. This is why we share what God has done. Be it small, be it big, you share what God has done. You do not know what he might do with that. She did not have Sunday school. She did not have the Bible. She simply heard what the Lord had done, and she knew that he was greater than any other God. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, Israel, for the Lord your God, he is is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. I mean, this is an amazing declaration of faith. What she's saying is there's only one God. He is over all other little g gods. In fact, there's really no power in any other God but Yahweh. She did not argue God's right to give the land to Israel. She acknowledged it to be rightfully true, and this is what saving faith is, which is why one day she's going to be written into the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 31, the hall of faith. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. Why? Because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Her faith was demonstrated in action. God opened her eyes, just like one day he's going to open the eyes of Peter and countless other Christians, including yours, brother and sister in Christ. You know what Jesus says in Matthew 16, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's Peter, for flesh and blood is not revealed that I am the Christ, but my Father who is in heaven. So listen, this is theology. This is where it really Rubber meets the road. This is where it becomes practical theology. God must open the eyes of the unsaved for them to believe. And he does it by declaring what God has done. And he declares what God has done through our own testimonies as well as his word. Listen, we must be sharing Christ. You've got to be taking it to your coworkers. You've got to get it to your friends, your neighbors. You've got to get it to your family members. Share over and over in wonderful, beautiful, illustrious ways what God has done in your life. And the trigger point of faith is when they hear what the Lord has done. Her eyes are opened. Her faith explodes in righteous action. James talks about this in chapter 2. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So her faith The reality of it, the truth of it, was demonstrated when she protected the spies and sent them out her window down the wall in a safe direction. You know, archaeology, by the way, it's very fascinating. They have done, I think, more excavation work in Jericho than they have in anywhere else in all of Israel. Archaeology is revealed. You know why they've done that, by the way? Can I tell you this really quickly? Side point. This is not even part of the message, but you do need to know this. At least I think you do. If they can discredit Jericho, everything else begins to fall like dominoes for all that happened afterwards. 
So they are working so hard, they have been working so hard in trying to discredit that this ever happened, yet time after time, all of their digs and all of their archaeological evidence keeps pointing to the Bible. But it still has to go through a filter. So you got one archaeologist, Kenyon, who's gone over there. She did not believe in the Bible. She is vigorously opposed to Christ. So she found all of the same evidence that points to the exact same account in Joshua chapter 2 through 6, except she dated it much, much earlier and therefore said Joshua never happened. It's crazy. Archaeology today, you can get on the internet and find this. It's revealed that Jericho had a great embankment surrounding the city where they had a lower wall and an upper wall. The lower wall significantly lower, a rampart or an embankment that went up. And at the base was a stone retaining wall, 12 to 13 feet high, on top of which was a 6 foot thick mud brick wall, 20 to 26 feet high. And at the crest of the embankment where the, the inner wall was, was another wall, and this was 46 feet high. Houses were built, by the way, between those two walls, very, very common in ancient days. In fact, it was built right, houses were built right into the walls, and according to 2.15, that was Rahab's home. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city walls so that she lived in the wall. There's nothing unusual with this. This is just ancient, the ancient way they built cities. And the reason being is they used every bit of space they could. It's only eight acres big. So they would build storage. They would build homes in between those, those walls and build houses right into it. So she releases these spies out that window of her home on the wall, but not before she forces and makes them take an oath. And here we're going to see the third part of the gospel. Rahab is a picture of faithfulness to others. Look at verse 12. Now then, she says to the spies, please swear to me by Yahweh that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The spies give her their word. They hand her a scarlet cord to tie up in her window. Maybe it speaks back to Egypt when they painted the lintels of the doorposts with blood from the lambs and the angel of death skipped over those homes protected by the blood. Maybe that scarlet cord points forward to the blood that's going to be shed by the Lamb of God. Jesus will avert the wrath of the Father and give peace and love and forgiveness to those who believe. Whatever it points to, it's powerful. It's a marker. This is where her home is. And by the way, this is really interesting, as you're going to see in a minute. Well, I'll just tell you now. A German excavation in 1907 found in Jericho the remains of the northern lower section of the city wall. It's still, it's still to this day there. It didn't fall. I mean, you've got to be thinking, right? Her house is built into the wall. If all the walls of Jericho fell down, how did she survive? Well, there's a whole section in the lower northern part of the city where the wall to this day never fell. And they've even discovered in that section of wall houses built into it. 
See, her faith moves her actions. And she puts the cord immediately, it says, in the window. The, the conquest of Jericho was not going to happen for a while. She puts it in the window immediately. And when the city would fall later, she and her family were spared from death. Look at verse 25 of chapter 6. you got to skip to chapter 6. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. Wow, well, one more point because this gospel is not complete yet. And this last one's pretty awesome. Actually, I'm going to give you, well, let me give you one more point. Rahab is a picture of God's exceeding blessings. Look at verse 25 again, chapter 6 of Joshua. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, this is amazing what I'm going to tell you. I'm almost done, by the way, so you can give me your absolutely full attention. This is incredibly amazing. She was so blessed. I mean, God just poured blessings onto her. And while she eventually would die later, she lived, or rather through her, came the greatest birth in human history, that of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He came through Rahab. She eventually marries a Jewish leader. Name is Salmon. He is the, he is the leader in the tribe of Judah. And through them, now watch this, through them, a man named Boaz would eventually be born, who marries whom you're going to hear about next week. That's next week's Wonder Woman, Ruth. And through Boaz and Ruth and their marriage, Obed would be born, who was going to be the father of Jesse, who you might be familiar with. He is the father of King David. Rahab would be the ancestor of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. I'll prove it to you in Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This is her blessing. This was a prostitute that was an incredible sinner in a fallen, morally decayed city that's, that had the doom of God upon it, rescued because of her faith, simply because she heard about what Yahweh had done and believed that this land rightfully belonged to him. He could give it to whom he wanted. He was going to conquer the land. She got on mission. She saved her family because of her faith. It was put into action, and God's blessings were exceeding. Through her came the Father who would raise the Son of God on earth. That's amazing. Now let me ask you a question, because I am almost done. Just give me a little bit more time. Not much. Do you not feel like a sinner? Have you not ever struggled? God, could you ever use me? I screw up. I blow it. I drop the ball. I sin. I fail you over and over and over. 
the, really, the wrong trajectory with that line of thinking is that your usefulness begins with your own intrinsic potential. And the reality is exactly opposite. What can God do through you? It is unimaginable. Do you know that you're a sinner? You know what that means, Christian brother and sister? It means you constantly need to stay by the cross. If you get inflated with pride, you know what, I think I got this down now. And you walk away from the cross, you are going to fall on your face in despair. And you will be humbled. But that humiliation is sweet because it will bring you crawling right back to the cross. And it's finally at the cross where God begins to exert his power the most. And all of a sudden your faith, I can be used by God. Not because there's something in me by my own power. But because the power of the greatest being in the universe can do what he wants to through me. So I will walk with him, and I will worship him, and I will love him, and watch what he does in my life. And he's going to put me on mission, and my family is going to hear about God, and my friends are going to hear about Christ, and my neighbors and my coworkers are going to hear about what God has done in my life, and person after person, I believe, their faith is going to get activated, their faith is going to come alive, their eyes are going to be open, and they're going to get to the point where they cry out for a savior for themselves why because you simply trust god and his blessings will pour into your life so you will be exceedingly satisfied in him that's the story of rahab that's why she's in the bible that's why she's in the Hall of Faith. That's why James 2 brings her up as being in a great demonstration of faith right after Abraham, one of the greatest demonstrations of faith. This is how highly the Jewish people extolled this former prostitute who put her trust and her faith in Jesus. Or Yahweh, who would one day be given the name Jesus. So let me end by this. Are you here this in this sanctuary right now, having never put your faith in Jesus. I don't know. I mean, only God knows and only you know. I cannot answer that question for you. Even if you've been coming to this church for 20 years, I cannot answer that question for you. But I can ask it. Have you truly, just be honest. You're the only one that needs to answer it. It's just between you and God. Have you truly, honestly, Put your faith in God through Jesus Christ. Not felt so far gone that God could not possibly love you until you clean up your act. Listen, that is not grace. He will clean you up when he begins working in you. Have you ever come to the cross with your scarlet cord hanging out the window of your soul going, I need Jesus? If you haven't, well, I'm going to tell you what the spy said. Take this cord, put it into the window of your heart, and just simply leave it there and cry out to God. He will forgive you. And he will raise you up and he will bless you and he will use you in fantastic ways that you never, ever saw coming. Did you come to Jesus? Did you hang that scarlet cord in the window of your heart? But have you walked away? Have you thought, you know, I can... Do it now. Lord, you got me started. I can pick it up from now on. You cannot. 
you've got to get back to the cross. Rahab is in the story to show you what awaits you when you put your faith in God. And a life worth living is yours. Amen?